We're going to continue in our, our Word of God series, and uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. But before we get there, I want to I share a story with you briefly, just something that happened to me yesterday. I'm sorry, on Friday night. Friday night, we had a, a class at the church in Chantilly that I was going to help teach, and uh, I got there early so that I could prepare and, and get everything started, you know, unlock the building and everything, uh, turn the lights on. And uh, I just, I didn't have a key to the building. And so I, I got there early only to be able to sit out in the parking lot and think about the things that needed to get done. <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm sitting in the parking lot in my car, kind of trying to sit in the driver's seat, working on my computer, like T-Rex. And... <laughs> T-Rex and that thing. And, and, um, and so then other people come into the parking lot and they're like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, just kind of waiting for someone with a key to show up. <laughs> Do you have a key? And the number of people who got there and everybody gets out of the car like excited, like, oh, there's a group of people going in. And then it's like, nope, just a group of people standing around waiting to go in. And, um, and the pastor Eddie comes on the scene and, and he's like, uh, he knew exactly what was going on. And, and fortunately, he had a key and he was able to get us in. And what was funny is, so we had this desire to be in the building. Uh, we had this need to be in the building. Uh, we had things that we were planning on doing, things that we were, we had, we were prepared for, we, we wanted, we expected, we anticipated. We just couldn't get into the dang thing. Um, we, needed, we needed access. And it was access that came when Pastor Eddie came. Actually, the truth is, I had lots of keys um, <laughs> I just didn't have the right key, wow. right? Like my house key wouldn't work in the church doors. Yeah. Yeah. What's that about? <laughs> and my car keys wouldn't work in the front door. I didn't try, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> I, I didn't try. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> this time I didn't try. So we're standing there, and it, but, but I had lots of keys. I just didn't have the right key. And so when the right key came, we were able to get access. And so this week, what I, what I did is I, I titled our message um, something about access. The Word of God, access granted. There were like four versions. I wasn't sure which one I gave you. So access granted. And so I want to talk about the access that's granted to us in the Word of God. And to get there, we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. So if you could stand with me to read the Word of God this morning. May grief, <laughs> that's why we don't read it together yet. May grease and pace. <laughs> awesome. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is God's word to us. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would stir our hearts and our minds to hunger for more knowledge of who you are and what your purposes are. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. I 
I want to start by, by looking at the, at the introduction that, that we read at the beginning of this. Um, and then we're going we're gonna to work our way through and we're going to focus on, on verse 4. That's where our, our primary emphasis is going to be. And we're going to talk about uh, the promises that are made, the privilege that we have to escape from wickedness, and also the, what it means to be a, a participant or a partaker in the divine nature that God is, uh, desires for us. What we see is this, this greeting, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And, and it's easy sometimes when we're reading the Bible to dismiss things as introductory or just as information. And so if you read this, it just sounds like a greeting. It's like, why take the time to focus on a greeting? And that's because what Peter was offering here was more than just a greeting. Peter was offering encouragement and inspiration. He was offering, in some regard, probably correction to some. And what he, what he says is, is, is two really, really important words. He's, this word grace and this word peace. Now, peace would have been a, a traditional Jewish greeting. They would have welcomed each other by saying shalom or by saying peace. And they would have welcomed one another with peace. Peter's coming along and he's saying grace and peace. And the order of this is important because grace or charis, the, the presence, the nearness, the power of God is the thing that delivers to us the peace that we're supposed to have. You tracking? And so he's opening up and he's, he's not just saying, hey, what's up? It's Peter just writing you a letter, want to let you know what's going on. And then tear off into the actual content of the letter. The, the introduction itself, the welcoming, the salutation itself is to encourage. It's the same as walking up to somebody and saying, how you doing, man of God? I'll text people and I, I text M-O-G, lowercase M, lowercase O, capital G, MOG. And I'm like, man of God, I just want to remind you who you are before we have this conversation. I try not to do it to people I don't know their name. Right, because then it becomes just a casual, like, friend, you know, <laughs> and you don't actually learn people's names. You just give them pet names. Right, that's not fair. In, uh, nicknames, friend, you know, but you can greet somebody, champion, right? I, I, got, I got some friends who live in Nashville, and, and they greet me with champion, champ, champion, man of faith, in a strong tower, and it's like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> let's go take this hill. I don't even know what we've got to do, but i got to knock something over. Like, give me a direction so I don't burn things down because you just got me fired up. And so Peter's taken off, and he's writing this letter, and he's saying, let me just remind you who you are. In fact, in, in verse 1, I'll, just, I'll jump backwards a little bit. He says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have fa obtained faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, so he welcomed, he's like, hey, yo, we're, we're this, we got the same faith. We've got the same power of God operating through us. Come on, let's go. And I hope that you all hear the same thing in our communication here at Grace Covenant. That, that when, when we're, we're saying, hey, let's go, we're not saying, follow me because I'm, I'm higher than you. Nobody's born higher than anybody else. We're coming along with the same faith, with the same power, even with the same struggles. That's good. That's good. I, I read a, a, a book one time on preaching. He said, always remember that you're coming from the pew into the pulpit. You weren't born in the pulpit. And so my goal is to encourage you and to invite you along because you have access to everything that I have access to. There is a laying of hands and ordination to say, hey, you got to carry the weight. 
that I have to carry. And you don't have to carry the same weight and government in, in, in this environment that I have to carry. But in your home, you have the same weight and government that I have in my home. In your workplace, you have weight and government that I don't have weight and government in your home or in your workplace. And so, so he's saying, come on, we're the equal state. Because there's a temptation sometimes, right? When an apostle walks in or somebody that you know as a, as a pastor, when Pastor Brett comes, it's kind of like, ooh. You know, I whew, hope it's right. <laughs> I feel that way when Pastor Brett comes. I'm like, I hope we do okay. <laughs> yeah, I just want him, to be, want him to be good. I remember one of the first times Pastor Brett visited, everybody kind of stayed away from him, but around him. <laughs> just making sure everything was okay, you know, picking up trash and being like, you know, <laughs> put it in the pockets, you know, just <laughs> trying to hide everything. Be like, you know, hey, you know, everything's good, right? Right? Right. Right. And so there's this temptation. And so Peter's saying, hey, I know about this temptation. Because I walked with Jesus. And so I know about this temptation. I want to let you know that there, there's probably a gap between Jesus and me. But there's not a gap between you and me except for the responsibility that I bear. And so he's like, come on, people. And so, um, so it's this welcoming. It's this encouragement. It's this training that before you ever have peace, you need to experience the grace of God. You need the nearness of God to produce the peace that, that it is that you desire. We, we're on the search for peace, right? And we, we look for things that will bring us peace. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll be, you know, stretch class or maybe it'll be riding my bike. But, but it seems that when the activity is over, there's everything again. And the grace of God, the, 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 the strength and the nearness and the presence of God is something that doesn't escape us after the activity. As we draw close to God today and we feel encouraged and we feel inspired during worship and we feel stirred for the things of the kingdom, it's not something that has to leave us as we leave because the grace of God can come with us. The nearness of God is something that's available to us all the time. So he's saying, hey, if you want peace, you need the grace of God. And the grace of God and the peace of God are going to come through knowledge of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so it's the knowledge is this key, knowing that he's there. But it's not just about knowing. In, the, in, in their time, you didn't, there wasn't, well, there was intellectual knowledge and theoretical knowledge that wasn't applied to anything else. In fact, that's one of the reasons that Peter wrote this letter. There, were these, there, were the, there was this group of people called the Gnostics who, who claimed to have special revelation. But their revelation was really theoretical. And their, their revelation was kind of built up and puffed up and not based on the ministry of Jesus Christ at all. Not based on the person of Jesus Christ. It was built on kind of this ethereal, kind of like uh, things are spiritual and it's a spiritual resurrection. It's a spiritual death. And, and because of these things, we can, we can, we can be ratchet. We can, we can go out and we can, we can drink and we can, we can party and it doesn't matter because we're forgiven. And they claimed the special knowledge that was detached from the rest of their life. And that's just, that's simply not the, the way the resurrection shows us. Right. The resurrection of Jesus was a bodily resurrection. He, he rose in body. It was skin and bone and flesh, although changed somehow, right? We get to see when we, when we see him face to face, changed somehow. It's a physical resurrection and a spiritual resurrection. So he, he's dealing with this partial knowledge. But for the most part, knowledge was not something and belief was not something that was separate from our behavior. When you believe something, you do it. 
In our intellectual age, what we like to do is say, well, you can believe separately than your behavior. I would contend for you this morning that our behavior tells us what we really believe. We can't, we can't separate them. We like to say, I didn't, I didn't mean to do it. It's not who I am. It's not what I believe. But it is. <laughs> We're just surprised by it and embarrassed by it when it comes out. Right? Like if I yell at my kids and I'm like, you guys are driving me crazy. <laughs> Which has never happened ever. I'm just saying, <laughs> maybe somebody in here has done that. Read about it. I saw it in a movie. It just feels like my experience. I can't be like, sorry kids, I'm not an angry person. <laughs> right? That's what we try and do. I'm not angry. It's just that you... <laughs> not angry until you were in this home with me. <laughs> so clearly you are the problem. <laughs> no, not the case at all. It just revealed what's inside of me. Our behavior reveals what's inside of us. How we respond reveals what's inside of us. Though hopefully in decreasing measure as we grow in Christ, right? As we, as we grow and mature. I mean, sometimes maturity is just the stifling and the covering up of that stuff. Right? And I'm not saying spiritual maturity. I'm saying social maturity is not laying down on the floor when you're tired. Like, like at a dinner party, you're like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> you know, like, game over. We're going home. I'm taking a nap right here at this dinner party. We can't do that. And we know because we're socially more mature, right? But we still want to do it. <laughs> right? And so we make up a really good reason why we have to leave because... Apparently, social maturity is lying. That's not true. If you're in high school or middle school, that's not the goal. You know, the selective hearing. Context is everything. Um, so is irony. So, um, <laughs> what are we talking about? Oh, so spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is where we allow the word of God to get down into our soul and to deal with the selfishness and the anger and the, and the bitterness that would otherwise gladly just harbor itself there forever. Yeah. Yeah. It would gladly hide behind politeness. Yeah. It would gladly hide behind red bowls, you know, right? Red bowls in, in you know, the bottle. It's pleased just to stay there and drive its roots further and further into our heart as long as we don't, we don't deal with it. Because dealing with it's hard. And so, so we, have this, we have this knowledge that is supposed to be not just intellectual, but intellectual, yes. And by the way, faith is not a, a, an, an ignorant thing. Faith, you can add, you can have knowledge with your faith and you can, you can learn and you can study. You can learn about who Jesus was and how he lived. You can learn about the, the death and the resurrection. You can learn about God's people and how he brought them through. And you can see the evidence of God through in, in science. And you can find the evidence of God in literature. You can find the evidence of God in sociology and psychology and all the other ologies. <laughs> Lots of ologies. You can find it there. Our, our faith does not have to be ignorant. So we've got this knowledge, and, but it should be intellectual. We can, we can have intellectual knowledge of God. Now, there's a place where we're going to run out of knowledge, like where, or where we exhaust our ability to know. 
there's this uh, there's this bell curve, you know, um, where it's like how much you how much you know, no, how much you think you know, and how much you know. Okay, you ready? So going up, how much you know. How much you think you know, how much you know. And it starts here. You don't know anything and you don't think you know anything and that's cool. Right? And you're happy there. And then it it goes here and you've learned quite a bit and you start to think that you've learned a whole lot of it. Right? And so you're like way up here. You've seen this at work, right? You figure out where the Keurig is. You think you know everything about the culture of the... Your office. And, and, then, and then what happens is as you continue to know more, it drops back down and you realize, oh my goodness, and all the knowledge that there is to have, I have a very little amount of knowledge. Right? Because we can never only know a very little of what all can be known. But we should desire to know and grow intellectually. And, uh, but our, our knowledge should also be relational. It should also be very personal. That we can, we can know God and we can know Jesus in a personal way, in an intimate way. By, by reading his word and by, by learning about his, his heart and his mind, we can relate to him and, and see what his plan is, what his heart is, what his purpose is. We can see who he is. We can relate to God in prayer and in worship. We can talk to him. Mean, it's so cool that God gave us permission to talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right? I, I mean... More times than I'm comfortable admitting, I've told my kids, just don't talk to me right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I just, my brain's full. Right? But how awesome is our God that he doesn't say, don't talk to me right now. My brain is full. Amen. In fact, he's like, come talk to me about, come talk to me about your crazy stuff. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He's saying, come to me, all you people who are feeling like you're crazy, and I'll meet you. How opposite of that is our, like, that's the complete opposite of our invitation. We're like, hey, come if you got your act together, <laughs> and we'll spend some time together. Come if you got similar interests, and we can do a little something together. And then I'll make you better than you, you came good. He's saying, come and bring your mess. And I'll exchange. I'll do an exchange for you. And I'll give you something greater. There should be a a, a relational knowledge. And there should be a practical knowledge. That this is how God works. This is how our God operates. This is what our God prioritizes. I have an intellectual, a, a relational, and a practical relationship and understanding of who my wife is. Intellectual, I know she exists. Relational, she's my wife, and, and we're one together. It's called to just take the hill together. We're, we're together in this. We're one person. Practical, it's, it's good to give her flowers every once in a while. Better to load the dishwasher. Often. See? Practical knowledge. Helpful. <laughs> right? And, and, oh, Yes. I was buying flowers a lot. And, and first of all, we couldn't afford it. But, you know, it was like, why isn't she so happy with it? And then one day I, I loaded the dishes and she's like, that's awesome. <laughs> I was like, oh, so I've missed the mark for waste, spent a lot of money. I almost said wasted. It wasn't wasted, baby. I love you. <laughs> love you. Best money I ever spent. But, 
It's, it's all found in the knowledge of God. <laughs> With no separation. And, and why? Why is this knowledge so powerful? Because it, when, we, when we know God in this way, when we relate to Jesus in this manner, we're going to learn, and, and we're going to not just learn, but we're going to know and also experience that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to or by his own glory and excellence. This knowledge just doesn't build up and then fall off a ledge somewhere. The knowledge leads us to these conclusions. And the knowledge leads us to an experience in him where we begin to understand that he has given us power to do everything concerning life and godliness. And that godliness would have been a shot at the Gnostics, right? It would have been like, hey, there's life and there's eternal life for now. And there's godliness. You don't, you, <laughs> he gives you the power to live holy in a sinful and fallen world. He gives you the power to live pure. He, lives, he gives you the power to stand firm in the midst of temptation and opposition. And the knowledge all leads in this direction. He's granted it to us. He's given it to us. And that also produces peace. Because we don't have to be at odds in our heart and in our mind. There's not going to be this struggle between what we know to be true and what we're experiencing. It, it, all comes, it all starts coming together. So where we're going to spend the rest of our time is in, in verse 4. And I want to look at, at, at the fact that God has made promises to us. That we're privileged to escape from the world and that he allows us to partake in his divine knowledge and he says it this way, by which he has granted to us through his glory and excellence, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. What are these precious and very great promises? The New American Standard Version translates very great as magnificent. Precious and magnificent promises. What are these promises? There's, there's none more significant than eternal life and salvation that's promised to us when we find ourselves in him. And just so we don't get confused, eternal life is not something that is supposed to start when we die. It's something that we're to have access to in this life. That this morning when you woke up, you weren't just entering a natural life. You have the opportunity and you have available to you, if you're in Jesus, the opportunity and the privilege of touching eternity. And kind of living in a, in a, in a, in a, in a different reality than, than you, you think you're living in. Does that make sense? So we have this invitation to come and to, and to live a life that's more than just the natural life that we would, that, that otherwise we just give ourselves all the way over to. Waking up and eating breakfast, going to work, you know, maybe, maybe playing with the dog or, or going to an activity and, and having some fun laughing and then just rinsing and repeating and, and having no eternal value to those things. But, or we could do those things with an eternal perspective and really get, enjoy the life of all of those things. Right? And if we're practical, if we're realistic about it, it's not like, man, these eggs are awesome. So much better than when we ate them yesterday. And the day before. And I can't wait to have the same lunch. 
It's not, it's not the kind of weird, kind of like pretend like everything is more awesome every day, but there's a fulfillment and a satisfaction that we can find in the mundane things when we're living a supernatural life. You with me? So we've got these, with the, uh, so uh, the Jesus, we, we have the word. And in the word, what we find is, is that there are, there are hundreds of other promises that are available to us. In the word, we, we, we see a promise. Uh, we can read about promises that were made and promises that were fulfilled. And in the word, we can see about promises that were made that have yet to be fulfilled. And we can eagerly look forward to and hope and anticipate them coming. In the word, we can see, we can see that, 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 that Jesus said, hey, I want to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to empower you to do the work of ministry. And then we get to see that promise fulfilled in Scripture. And we get to hear that same promise for ourselves and go, wait, God wants to give me more than just salvation? As if just salvation is a small thing. He desires to pour out his Holy Spirit on us, gives us, give us dreams and visions to, to empower us with spiritual gifts so that we can, we can cut through the fog of the natural world that we live in with a word of grace from heaven, with, with a word of knowledge or understanding, with a, with a prophetic encouragement for people who, who are in need of a word. What's amazing about the promises of God is that he doesn't just, he doesn't just promise and then, and then leave us hanging forever. But he promises us relationship and nearness and intimacy and fullness of life. He promises of uh, freedom to us. And then he made a way. He made a way. It's impossible for man to live a good enough life to, to achieve enough goodness to be called holy and righteous and to, be, to, to inherit eternal life, to earn eternal life. And what Jesus did is he saw us in that condition and he's like, I've got all these promises for you. I want you in the building just more than you even want to be in the building. And I see you out there in the parking lot with everybody else who has the wrong keys. The key of career, the key of financial donation, the key of tax-exempt giving, the key of planting trees, the, 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 the tree of recycling, or the key of recycling. I see you out there with all the wrong keys. Let me open this door for you. And Jesus opened the door to us, to him, to life, to the kingdom by dying and coming back from the dead on our behalf. So he made a way. And in him making a way, he gives us the privilege of escaping. Now, I'm I'm taking verse 4, and we're going to look at it in in chronological or like in process order, not in the order that it's written. Let me explain. It says, by which he's granted his very great promises. It's like he's he's given them to us. He didn't just promise. It's not like he made promises. He granted them. Uh, So that through them, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption. Right? So because we've escaped from corruption, we get to partake in divine nature. This escape that's available, I, I, I heard a story 
about uh, Houdini. You know, Houdini was the, like a contortionist, illusionist, magician kind of guy. He, he was famous for breaking out of jails. And there are all these re- records of him breaking out of jails. And I, I heard this one story one time. I couldn't, I couldn't find any evidence that it actually happened. It's not in the biographies that I, that I skimmed through. Um, but let's not let truth ruin a good story. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't going to tell you that I didn't find it. So let's go all in. So there's a story that he was in this one jail cell. And um, what he did is he, he was a master at hiding the key in places. And sometimes he'd palm it or he'd, he'd go in in the final inspection and he'd stick it up. He'd gum it up under the, the cot or something like that, just stick it up there. And then other times, he, one time he, he had somebody come and give him a hug and tell him, goodbye, you haven't made it out. You're, you're ruined. You're never going to make it. You're a disgrace. And so he, was just, he had to stay in jail. And he hugged them and he, he had placed the key on them without them knowing. And he, and he, and he took it and managed to get out, right? So slide of hand kind of stuff. That's how he did it. So there's this one story that, that he was in a jail cell and, and, um, and he, was, he was in there and they, they shut it and um, he, he couldn't get it. He was completely overwhelmed. He was outmatched. He was outgunned. And just in sheer desperation and, and defeatedness, he leans against the, the, uh, the gate. It's not a gate. It's a door. I feel like it should be more like uh, than door. Door. It's got bars. It's got to be more than, anyway. So he leans against the door <laughs> and the door swings open. It turns out that somebody who was, somebody who was uh, really wanting to mess with him didn't lock it. <laughs> because if you don't lock it, you can't unlock it. <laughs> and so he was waiting for the click. And everything he was doing, he was waiting for it to unlock because it has to unlock before you push on the, the cell door. Cell door. <laughs> Sounds more prison-y, right? Door is like a like in your house. We had the distinction, the cell door. So, so if it doesn't click, it doesn't happen. Anyway, it had been unlocked all along and he never took it. He never knew. He didn't take, he didn't take advantage of the fact that it was unlocked. Y'all, what Jesus did for us on the cross is he unlocked the prison cell door. It's unlocked. The power of the lock is gone. It's ruined. It's destroyed. And we're sitting here going, man, I'm stuck in this. And Jesus is like, I've unlocked it for you. I'm the one with the key. I am the master key, and I've unlocked it to you. And I'm giving you knowledge to stir your heart to come after me. See, all of this, it starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. It starts with God drawing us to himself, giving us desires and passions and, and bringing us to himself. And then, and then it ends with him at the very end of it anyway, because that's where we end up. He's like, let me give you a desire for me that I'm going to satisfy with me so that you can be with me forever. It's pretty cool. We can be set free. The door is opened. And then, and then, you know, it's one thing for the door to open. You also have to walk out, <laughs> right? You ever, seen a, you ever seen like an animal in a crate getting transferred and they open it up and the animal's like, uh-uh. <laughs> Last time I ran around the wild, you shot me. <laughs> so I'm not doing that, <laughs> Mr. Poacher Man. I'm staying right where I'm safe. And sometimes we feel so safe in... In our brokenness, we're scared to walk into the victory that God has for us. Because what would it feel like to forgive that person? 
I enjoy not forgiving that person. It makes me feel terrible. But life without that feeling would be scary. And to actually, maybe I'll accidentally love that person. And that would be, a, that would violate everything about how I think things should be. So there's a victory that we can walk into. And, it, and he says that, he says that having escaped from the corruption that's in the world, he's, he, we, um, we may become divine or partakers of the divine nature. Now, this divine nature is the character of God, not the essence of God. We don't become little gods. We, we, we get to participate in the character and the plan and the purposes of God. We get to be his image the way that he intended us to be his image in the first place. A reflection of his goodness and his glory, not the fullness of his goodness and glory. And so as we become partakers in the divine nature of God, it's, you know, he's created us with a divine nature that, that wants to be satisfied. You know, it's kind of like a balloon on the stage. Like if, if I had a flat balloon, it's like this thing has an expanding and filling nature, but until it gets filled, it's, it's just kind of a sad little piece of latex. It's not good for much. But what I could do is I could blow it up and help it realize its potential. Because it, it has a balloon nature. Let's make it, in, let's let it be the balloon that it is. We have a divine nature that God has created, a very on purpose nature that he desires for us to, to walk in the fullness of that can't be done without him. And the beginning of this is knowledge. Now, the knowledge thing's pretty cool, and, and, and I'll, I'll close with this. I, I, uh, one of the best books that I ever read on communicating was one by the guy who curates the TED Talks. Uh, Christopher Allen, I think is his name. And he wrote this book, and he's just he's a remarkable communicator. It's, it's a neat book. But the whole book is built on this idea that through ideas and through knowledge and through reason and logic, we can change the world. That we ourselves will be changed through learning more about education, learning more about design, learning more about, about people. Somehow, it'll suppress our sinful nature or solve our sinful problems so much to the point that if we could just educate everybody, we'll all get along. That's the idea behind the TED Talks. Now, don't boycott them. They're, there's really good content, but it needs to be content in its right place. So what I'm, what I'm trying to highlight is that God has put on us an, an, an understanding that knowledge is a key to something. He's put in us an understanding and a desire for knowledge because he knows that the knowledge of him will produce freedom from wickedness and the opportunity for us to participate in his divine nature. I feel like I should say it again, but I don't know how I said it. He's given us a desire for knowledge and knowing and seeking and, and finding more information 
We don't need more knowledge of, uh, of, of the physical world. We don't need, that's not going to produce the change that it is that we desire. Knowing more about, about outer space isn't going to produce the change in our soul that we actually long for and desire. Knowing more about even the internet and knowing more about technology and creating new things isn't going to satisfy the longing in our soul that needs more than the intellectual knowledge. There's a, there's a spiritual knowledge, I guess, that I, that I, the spiritual existence that intellectual knowledge fails to get to. And when we know God and we know Jesus, when we know them intellectually, relationally, practically, and spiritually surrender to them, we're changed. And so that's the invitation for us this week. To know more of him so that we can draw closer to him, so that we can know him, so that we can, we can walk away from the things that entangle us and we can walk in to the divine nature, the divine plan, the divine call that he has for you and me. So I want to challenge you to read your Bibles this week. All right, I want to challenge you to read your Bible. And, and this time we're going hard. We're going all seven days. We've had a, we've had a five for five challenge. We've had a five for five challenge. Read your, just read your Bible for five minutes for five days. We've, we've done that. And some of the people in our congregation, their life has been changed as a result of doing it. But this week, what I want you to do is I want you to pursue the knowledge of God. And I want you to pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ by reading your Bible every day this week. So just, just pull out your phone right now. We're about to do something else. Pull out your phone and set a reminder. Pick a time that you would normally watch Netflix. And make, oh, burn. It's like, what? Sometimes it's easier just to give money. Can't I just drop a couple bucks in the basket? No. <laughs> so pull out your phone. Put it, in the, put it in your calendar. Set a reminder. If, if you're married, tell your spouse. Be like, hey, this, we're going to read our Bible this week. If you're not married, text your friend. Be like, hey, we're reading our Bible this week. We're going to do this thing. And I'm, you don't have to do it for an hour and a half. Crack it open. Read it for five minutes. It's kind of like sit-ups, right? Like if you're doing no sit-ups, five sit-ups, you'll see a change. <laughs> right? Like when I, so if you're newer to the congregation, I used to be a little bit thicker. <laughs> a little bit thicker. <laughs> About 45 or 50 pounds thicker. And I started walking and I saw change right away because it turns out I wasn't walking at all. Um, if you have no friends, Andrew Snyder needs a friend. Just in terms of the Bible reading challenge. He just, he just texted me and said, what if you have no friends? <laughs> he's, he's a redhead. You'll see, him, you'll see him in the lobby after the service. If you have no friends, he'll be your friend for the Bible reading challenge this week. You're welcome, Andrew. <laughs> so, hey, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And then we're going to do something, uh, something that I've been trying to avoid. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, we love you. I thank you that this all starts and ends with you. God, I ask that this week you would stir our heart's affection for, for more of you, for, for knowledge and understanding of who you are and of your ways. God, it's really... It's such a great privilege that, that despite all the ways we 
we tend to reject you and turn away from you, you continually call us to yourself. So this morning we respond to, to your calling and we respond to your drawing by saying, here I am. We respond to your drawing by saying, I surrender. I surrender.